Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning to worship you. We pray that we would ever remember that you are worthy of our trust, and that no matter what season we are in today or whatever season tomorrow brings, that we would cling to you and trust you in all things. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I, I have this friend, and it seems like wherever we go, he either knows somebody or becomes friends with somebody. And maybe you have a friend like that and know what it's like. Maybe you're one of those people, but I, I don't know. I, I think they're a rare type of people. And I've always kind of marveled at this because whenever I go somewhere, I usually just want to be left alone to drink my coffee or buy my groceries or something like this. And I, I kind of wonder, like, well, how does somebody become one of those people that wherever they go, they just make a new friend, like it's the most natural thing in the world? So yesterday morning while I was drinking my coffee, I stumbled across an article called The Traits of That, that Super Friends Have in Common. And I figured super friends might have something to do with this. But also the, the subject of friendship is always interesting to me. And sure enough, the, the author of this article was a psychologist. And she was talking about these people that can befriend anybody, anywhere, anytime, regardless of the situation. And her hypothesis was it had to do with attachment types. Their attachment type, those super friend types of attachments, if you're one of those people, you're like this. It's secure. It doesn't really bother you whether the person actually likes you or not. You just make a friend because they're there and they're, well, why not? The rest of us fall into kind of a gradient between anxious attachment types and avoidant attachment types. Avoidant, you can probably guess what it means. You kind of avoid situations that don't make you comfortable and avoid making new friends. It's fine. I'm not judging you at all. <clears throat> On the other end of the spectrum is the anxious type, anxious type of attachment where you're really nervous whenever you meet new people and you kind of cling, either cling to them or you're just really scared and then the first time something goes bad, you run away. So there's these two types and it comes down to this question of trust. How do we trust people? How do we view trusting people? And this is the, face, the question that the brothers face this morning, isn't it? It comes down to, can we trust the man? And I love the fact that our translation renders this the man. They refer to Joseph as the man because they don't know that he is, in fact, their brother. So it comes up again and again, this idea of, can we trust this man, the man? <clears throat> we jumped over one chapter last, between last week and this week, but in the previous chapter, like the rest of the world, uh, Joseph or J Jacob and his sons are running out of grain and running out of food. And he hears, oh, there's food down in Egypt. Go down and buy some. And things don't exactly go as planned for the brothers. Joseph, of course, recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And perhaps you're scratching your head and wondering why. But remember, they sold him into slavery when he was 17. If somebody saw me 20 years later, which, would, which I'm now 38, so you know when I was 18... They would barely recognize me. I have a lot more facial hair and a lot less hair on the top of my head and a little more weight as well. So I wish that was the opposite, but here we are. 
And I didn't have glasses either, so I, I practically disguised, and I could go back and nobody would know me, maybe. Um, except Facebook, but that's I'm getting distracted. So they don't recognize him because it's been 20 years at least since the last time they saw him, right? And they, they just see this man, and maybe he's dressed more like an Egyptian than like he was when they was sold him into slavery. But he recognizes them, and he starts to kind of exact his revenge. He accuses them of being spies. He tosses them into prison. During their imprisonment, they start to think, well, maybe our sin is finally catching up to them. And as they talk about that, Joseph actually hears it and wonders, well, maybe they're, they're starting to be at least a little bit repentant. But still, he kind of wants to exact his avenge, maybe more than he ought to, and he keeps his brother Simeon as a prisoner and sends them back. But, but part of this was the one brother they didn't bring was his little brother Benjamin. And he says, if you don't come back with Benjamin, I'm paraphrasing, but if you don't come back with Benjamin, you will not see me again. And as they're heading back, they open their sacks and discover, oh my goodness, the silver is here. So they have a lot of reasons to be really nervous to go back to Egypt, but they, they tell their dad this, and Jacob is really upset. So there's no way he's going to lose both sons of his favorite wife, Rachel. He says, no, no way am I sending you back with, with Benjamin. But then they have a choice, and that's where we pick up this morning. About a year later, maybe a little less than a year later, they run out of grain. So they have a choice. They can either trust this man or they can starve to death. It's not much of a choice, right? But, but it is a choice. You know, you can take your choice as you will. And that kind of reminds us of the, we do have these times where we have choices and, and neither of them seem particularly good. But one of them pushes us more and more in a different direction. If we had to make that choice, I imagine, even if there were sacrifices to be made, we would probably still go back to that man so that we could get food and not starve to death. <clears throat> and as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about the, the disciples as they faced Christ's crucifixion and, and what must have been going through their mind. As you know, all of them except for one just, just scattered. They bolt. They're gone. They're hiding. They're terrified. And they're undoubtedly just wondering, well, we met this amazing man and we thought God was with him. And now he's dying this shameful death. Where, they wonder, has God led us to? We thought we, thought we were finally being obedient with our lives. What do you do in the midst of such a choice? Well, as you know, because we read the story, Jacob and the brothers decide that they must trust him. And so they bring as much as they can to kind of hopefully ease this man's seemingly odd anger with them. They bring double the money just in case, like, well, we better bring the money back because this is probably an oversight. Hopefully it's going to be okay. They bring, interestingly, the same gifts that were on the, on the caravan of the Ishmaelites who they sold Joseph to and when they sold him into slavery. And they bring Benjamin. And then, of course, Jacob says a little prayer. And it's one of the few times where we see Jacob really actually turning to God and saying, I need help in this situation. Bring, bring my son back to me. But they bring valuable things. 
They know that they need to make a sacrifice in order to survive. And perhaps you are also wondering, what is God doing? Or there are times in your lives where you will wonder. Are you trusting God? Are you willing to trust God with those things in your life that are the most valuable? So they set off on the journey. And as they come, Joseph sees his brothers, including Benjamin. And he sends his servants to the servant to them to tell them that they will eat with Joseph today. They, of course, still don't know that this is Joseph. <clears throat> and they send, he sends the servant with a message about the money. When they ask, like, well, we brought the money back because we noticed it was in the top of our sacks. We didn't mean to steal it. And he just says to them, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put the treasure in your sack for you. I received your money. Peace. Don't worry. Things will be okay. Don't be afraid. He puts the brothers at ease, remembering that fear and peace cannot reside together, and reminds them or tells them, no, this is not a thing of man. God did this thing. And then he takes them into Joseph's house, and he adds action to his words. He shows them a normal act of hospitality. Their feet were gross and dirty after this long journey. That's why washing feet was such a big deal than we wash feet on Monday, Thursday, because after the long journey, our feet become gross. So they get the opportunity to wash their feet. And of course, it seems like still probably in the back of their mind, they're a little bit like, well, is he just bringing us into the house so nobody can see us when he lops our heads off or something? But they're in there and they're waiting. And as he comes back, they give them these gifts that he had, they had brought. <clears throat> Gives them these gifts that they had brought to them. A sort of a, a peace offering. Sometimes when my daughter, who is deciding to tell us exactly what she thinks this morning. Well, most of you know, sorry, there's a little segue here. Most of you know she, she doesn't like to sleep alone, which is delightful because we get to cuddle with her a lot. But it's not so delightful because we get to cuddle with her a lot. <clears throat> but sometimes when she's sleeping and, and I'm cuddling with her and I look down upon our, her, she kind of is goofy, her mouth is open, and she's just, but she's totally at peace. And my heart just feels overwhelmed. And I, I'm sure many of you know that feeling of just the sweetness of seeing someone you love. And I can't imagine what it would be like to not see her for 20 years. You know, she's just, she's so small now, and to not see her as like, a little girl and a teenager and then all of a sudden an adult woman. But that's the situation that Joseph finds himself in. He's, he seems to have a fondness for his brother as, as we might expect. But when he leaves, his brother's just a little boy. We don't know exactly how old, but you know maybe, maybe he's even a 10-year-old. But he's not a big boy at this point, and he's certainly not an adult. And so he misses all of those stages of growing up. But then all of a sudden, he sees his brother, and it moves him, because the little boy that he saw is now an adult man. And all he can do is leave the room and cry. He doesn't want to weep in front of his servants, and he certainly doesn't want to weep in front of his brothers. <clears throat> and so he's moved and, and stirred as he sees his brother. And then he welcomes them all in, 
and gives them dinner. And we read that they're amazed by what's about to happen or by what happens, but for whatever reason, they're not like, wait a second, we should ask why this is happening. And there's three things that, that really should have made them do more than just amaze. First, Joseph eats alone. And this is a hint that something is going on here, right? We, we get an image of Joseph's eating here and the servants are eating here and, and the, the brothers are eating at another table by themselves. And it's kind of an interesting thing because it tells us, well, the Egyptians didn't want to eat with everybody else because that was kind of a, a bad thing for them to do. So why is Joseph sitting over there? Why is the man sitting over there? But they're like, oh, that's cool. But then secondly, the one that really should have just been like, wait, wait, how do you know this? Was that they were seated by age. The eldest was seated first and, and then down to Benjamin. And that really should have sparked some, some inquiry, right? Because, you know, maybe if one of us is like the difference between myself and somebody older in the congregation, it's pretty obvious. But if you guys are within five years of each other, there's no way of knowing who's older and younger. <clears throat> And yet they're just like, wow, that's amazing. Let's eat, guys. And finally, Benjamin gets a massive portion. I don't think he's meager with the rest of his brothers, and therefore he just gives his, his, young, his actual brother from the same mother like a ton more food or, or a regular amount of food. I think the brothers get, get a normal, healthy, healthy portion and then the brothers is like, you know, the, the kid at the, at the barbecue that takes one of everything and his plate is like that high? I think that's really what we should be seeing in our, in our head. And none of this, the brothers are like, wow, that, they're just like, that's cool. And they don't really do anything with it. They just feel at ease. They're like, well, I guess he's not going to kill us. We get to eat. And then they drink. And it says they drank and were merry. And that kind of skims over what really happens here. They drank and got drunk. They were so at ease, they let down their guard completely. And as we'll read on further, we'll, we'll discover that they probably shouldn't have completely let down their guard, but at least they're starting to realize, well, maybe we can trust this man. Maybe it's going to be okay. And it's, this is an odd passage, right? Because it just kind of connects things. And we might just read it when we're reading scripture and think, well, that's, that's a nice story. It's good, good to read that. But this passage acts to give us context. And if we, if we take a pause and ask, well, why did Moses tell us about this? Does he just want Moses to know that, or does he just want the Israelites to know that Joseph was kind of an odd dude? <clears throat> but there's that question that's kind of pervasive throughout it which is, can we trust the man? Can we trust him? And if we think about what the Israelites are going through as Moses may have been reciting this to them, or as the elders of Israel were reciting this to them, they're in the wilderness wandering. And at times it feels like listless wandering. And during that time, if, if you were listlessly wandering, you might have heard questions like, well, can we trust God? Is God really here with us? I know we saw this pillar of fire and there's been the smoky pillar this whole time, but is he just bringing us out here to die? Which is what they ask at some point. And part of what Moses is driving at as he tells this story to the Hebrews wandering in, Israel, in, in the wilderness 
Yes. Just as you can trust Joseph, you can trust God. His sovereign hand was over Jacob and his sons. His sovereign hand brought us out into Egypt so that we can know and have evidence for the rest of the history of our nation that we can trust God. Depending on your attachment style, you may wonder that same thing. You may wonder if you can trust people, and usually if you wonder if you can trust people, you also wonder, can I actually trust God? And if this is a question for you today, or it, it will be a question someday for you, is if this we we can if this is a question for you, we, we know the answer, and the answer is yes. You can trust God. First, we, we can even just start with this story. It seems almost like an arbitrary story that's kind of told to paint a weird picture of Joseph that we don't really know what to do with. But like we just did, we zoomed out and we could see the whole picture of what God is doing in Israel. And just as he shows Israel that he can be trusted to see them through, we too know that he can be trusted to see us through. If we zoom out even further and just look at the whole Old Testament, it's a whole series of good things and bad things and trusting God and not trusting God and all kinds of things like that. But the one consistent is God is consistently caring for his people. He raises up leaders to lead the people. He punishes leaders that are bad. And he brings his people back to him time and time again. Or we can look at the disciples. Remember, they scatter. They're terrified on the night of Christ's crucifixion. They were left alone and afraid. But Christ rose. He did not, he did not hold their fear against him. He forgave them. He, he let them touch him. He taught them. And then they saw him ascend into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to comfort them, but not just them, to comfort the whole church. We have the Holy Spirit so that we have comfort amidst hardship. Or you can just look at the life of the church. You can look at the life of our church and what the Lord has done for us. You can look at the history of the church, how he saw the Eastern church through oppression how we saw the Western church through Reformation, that we might continue to preach the word of God. And if you can't see a reason to trust the Lord in your life, and you want some other evidence, ask one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. My friends, if you wonder, can we trust the Lord? The answer is a resounding yes. Just as Israel wanders in the wilderness, as Moses and the elders recite the story to remind the people that the Lord is at work, it screams one thing. God brought us into Egypt. God brought us here, and God will bring us through. My friends, God has brought you here today. Christ is redeeming you. The Holy Spirit is changing and reforming your hearts. Make no mistake, you can trust God even in the wilderness. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.